1: And welcome back, my friends, to the latest episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. And at the beginning of the year, my friends, one of the promises I made was that we would talk a lot of real estate this year. And I get a number of people that reach out to me from time to time. And as a matter of fact, there's many I don't bring onto the show. However, a select few do make it. So this year, we've had on Peter Kim. Damian Lupo, Corey Fawcett, Mark Podolsky, and Larry Harbolt. Some are physicians and some are not to help educate us on real estate and their experiences. As a matter of fact, our next guest, he is a podcaster. He is a U.S. Army Gulf War veteran. So we want to thank him for his service. Originally earned his Florida real estate license back in 2000. And he has actually owned and operated a trucking business. He's worked as a police officer. He's been a charter captain and all kinds of other interesting experiences in life. Finally, October of 2014, about three years ago, he really jumped into this world of education through podcasts, much like myself, helping to educate others about real estate investing to share his glorious successes and smashing Failures, please help me welcome Tyler Chef of the C- Cash Flow Guys podcast. Welcome, Tyler. Hey, David, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's a beautiful day as uh, we're recording this here in, in uh, August, and uh, I understand you're getting a bit of rain out your way, huh?
0: We are getting a little bit wet, but
1: that's okay because that makes the grass grow. It's okay. Well, you know, I'll be jealous that you come January when it's a beautiful. 60, 70 degrees in Florida, and it's a negative 20 here in Minnesota. So
0: Exactly. You know. Well, you know what they say about Florida is if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, with all these experiences, have you lived in Florida most of your life? You know, what's, what's a bit about your background? I gave a little bit of a thumbnail sketch there.
0: I grew up in upstate New York, actually. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, uh, graduated high school up there, and then I joined the Army. So I spent uh, the next five years over in Germany. Well, actually, one of those in Kansas and then the other four in Germany. And then mm. it, um, I spent it. I did spend a couple years as a kid. My parents got divorced. I did spend some time here in Florida, and then um, when, when I it came to getting a job, you know, we're at that point where okay, I'm out of, the, I'm getting ready to get out of the army. I got to grow up and be a real man now. So do I go to college? Do I go get a job? if I'm going to get a job or go to college, where is that going to be? I'm looking to the right to Buffalo, looking to the left, you know, from my glance over from Germany, and I'm looking at Florida. And I had both my parents. One was in Buffalo. One was in in Tampa. I said, send me a copy of the Sunday paper, would you please? Uh, mm-hmm. the job section. I looked in Buffalo and it was uh, one page of jobs in Buffalo. And all of those <laughs> said, must have a master's degree or higher. And I thought, well, okay, that's not me. Mm-hmm. And then the next, the look to the left in Florida had about 17 pages of jobs. I said, Oh, there we go. And it's sunny there. So <laughs> after three years and in, in, in four years in Germany in the snow, uh, looking in Florida weather was definitely where I wanted to settle. And that's how I wound up here.
1: Interesting. And, was your background, did, did your folks invest in real estate? Because here you're going to be talking a lot about real estate today. So how did you gain an interest in that? How did that come about? Well, you know, it
0: came down to my mother was a real estate agent, and she has uh-huh. been for well, 40 years now. And she really never invested per se. She, she flipped a house, or maybe two, when I was a kid. My dad never really invested in real estate, anything like that. But for me, it was, I, I got... I started flipping houses because I got my real estate license to work with my mother. And then of course through that process, I, I met some flippers and I got caught up in the glamor. I'm like, Oh, isn't this glorious and I can someday have a Lamborghini and it'll be great. And I realized that although that could be highly profitable if done right, uh, that there's a, a, 95, not 97% failure rate flipping houses and that it is the most heavily taxed way of doing real estate. That's possible. I had to pick right. the most expensive way. Why
1: not? Right short term capital gains. We don't like those. Those are bad.
0: Sure don't. So I, you know, for me, it was great when I was in my twenties and and early thirties. But, uh, when I started to grow up and got into my forties and now I'm scratching scaring the heck out of 50, it was like, you know, I better really start looking at a way to work smarter and not harder.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, buying became my thing. So was it, were you looking at single family homes or what was your, your first experience in getting into real estate?
0: Well, when I was flipping houses, it was single family only. Uh, that's all I knew, and, and those are really ideal. Those are ripe for the flipping. That was back when flipping wasn't yet cool, so to speak. It was uh, year 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. I rode the market all the way up, and in 2004, I sold off everything. I had taken my properties, and put, I would rehabbed them, and then I put tenants in them for the last year, from 2003 to 2004, uh, about halfway through the year. Because back then, our market was appreciating at a rate of 25% per year. Jeez. So... Not only was I collecting rent for holding costs uh, because you do have holding costs when you have a house, but I was able to make a twenty five percent increase in my profit by simply let, sitting on them and doing nothing and I sold off the whole portfolio, but I didn't allow for capital gains tax and at the time I had a rather significant flip portfolio, and uh, I got a very large bill from the i r s let's say that I wasn't planning for mm. um, and after living that little rock star lifestyle, you know, it's like, oh, look, I got all this money in." <laughs> you know, when that bill came, I went, Well, I don't have quite that much money. <laughs> Whoops.
1: <laughs> yeah. you thought, oh, I got to keep all this in the bank. And oh, wait a minute. Uncle Sam came knocking with a bill in hand. So um, I- I'd love to know why did you choose to sell out at that time? What What was going through your mind? Take us back to that moment when you sold out. What What was the reasoning behind that?
0: I wished that I could say that I was some sort of a a mid-20s, early-30s prodigy that had just perfectly timed the market. But all I can tell you is greed. There was Mm -hmm. no skill involved in it at all. It was like, geez, I want all my money, and I'm going to go ahead. I thought there was at the time I was so naive, I thought that was enough money to retire, and I wasn't even close. Uh, So I wound up with a pile of money that, of course, Uncle Sam uh, cut himself a big slice of that piece of pie, and that was the end of that.
1: So what What were you thinking at that time that gosh, I could live on like sixty grand a year or something? I'd love to hear more about what 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 oh, you thought financial freedom was at that time
0: that was it really. I mean thirty thousand dollars was a lot of money to me back then. I think at the time I was living on about eighteen to twenty thousand dollars a year, so mm. anything more than that was just a dream and I think I did my numbers on forty thousand a year, and you know I couldn't count that high when I was that young, so <laughs> 40,000 a year seemed like a lot. Uh, At my math, that would last me about 15 years or so. And I thought, you know, what could go wrong? I'll just, this is great. I'm going to sell all these properties. I can live off this for 15 years. I'm sure I can figure something out in the next 15 years. Right. Thought maybe I'd go to law school, become an attorney or something like that. You know, always wanted to go to law school and uh, that didn't quite work out as we planned. So, interesting. Yeah.
1: So you mentioned that you ended up doing something with that money, though like in 2004, 2005. So what happened at that point?
0: Yeah, well, at that point, I you know, partied like a rock star because that's what seemed to make sense at the time. Figured I had plenty of money and uh, spent a lot of airplane tickets and private jets and all this good stuff and, of course, made my donation to the IRS to make sure I had my parking spot. (laughs) So wound up spending myself, you would think, as much money as I spent back then, you would think that I had some sort of a drug habit and I'm a guy that barely even drinks a beer, but (laughs) I don't know where all that money went, which is kind of sad and shocking. But uh, I discovered then that it's like, you know, first of all, I need to figure out a different way to do this to make money that is not so heavily taxed. And more importantly, I need to get a control on my spending because my spending was out of control.
1: Hmm. And so what did you do? What, well, what did that look like?
0: You know, it, it, I got married and my wife was like, I had the trucking business and that was doing well. And then, of course, the housing market crashed in, in 08, 07, 08, and the economies crashed, global markets crashed. And it had a big impact on the trucking industry. Gas prices went up to four dollars a gallon for diesel. All that, so yep, yep. I closed down my trucking business and I went to work for the federal government. Hmm. Uh, I worked as a merchant mariner at sea, and again, I started becoming, I started making great money, and I was in management and government and had a great cushy job. I was a six-figure income earner. I was making almost just under two hundred thousand a year after two years working for the government, and it just kept climbing. And I thought, this is great, but again the tax man came knocking on my door and uh, he wanted a very large donation because I was that W-2 income earner. You know, I had this payroll coming in and, and they just taxed the living heck out of me. So again, I'm looking at myself going, talking to my wife and going, well, this isn't even worth it because I make 200, but I only get to keep 100. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you start making 200, you live like you get 200. And then when you only wind up with 100, now you're you're almost paycheck to paycheck trying to... to to make it go. So there had to be a better way. And for me, I I researched, how do I legally reduce my taxes? And the answer became abundantly apparent. Everywhere I looked, it came back to the same common denominator. It was like, buy real estate, but keep it. Just hang on to it. Don't sell it. Don't flip it. Don't do anything. Just buy it. Let somebody else live there and pay for it, and you can reap the tax benefits. And that's exactly what we started doing.
1: So you started, you were employed... By the government, and you kept working that that job. It sounds like, and then you started investing in real estate again. Um, was this this was after the crash? Now, so we're talking two thousand nine. Yeah, two thousand ten.
0: I went to work for for the government, and then about two thousand twelve, I wanted I started really focusing on my learning. And I was out in a ship in the middle of the sea, so I wasn't doing a whole lot of real estate out in the middle of the ocean. Right. So I was uh, spending that time learning. I listened to podcasts literally for twelve hours a day seven days a week, because that was my work schedule, and uh, reading books and doing the whole nine yards. Just get, Even though i have been in real estate for many years, I was never really in the buy and hold side, and I certainly wasn't in the multifamily side. That was a very strange, odd beast that was somewhere off on the horizon for people that are smarter than I am. And uh, when I got out of the, you know, I, I came home. At the time, I was making so much overtime, uh, David, that I had to, one of the ways I mitigated my taxes was I took paid time off they would give me paid time off instead of overtime. So I I racked up six months paid time off. So I came home for six months. My wife and I talked about it with a paycheck, with my full paycheck. And my wife and I said, well, if we're going to make a break, now would be the time. So let's. Mm -hmm. we've got six months of of my income coming in. Of course, my wife's working at the time. Let's make a go of you getting back into real estate. I've always been good in in sales and marketing. So let's get back out there, roll up our sleeves, see if we can get, get enough passive income for you to quit your job within that six months or at least get a good warm fuzzy that we're going to be able to accomplish that and i managed to do just that
1: so what what was the first step i mean what what were you doing this so this is 2011 right 2012
0: yeah we're 2012 we're... we're coming in 2013 i i got out there and went to I, I had to renew my real estate license i had let it lapse when i was at sea because you know you don't need a real estate license to build the ocean <laughs> so i went back to school and renewed my real estate license and started working as a realtor while I was collecting my paycheck. So I had a little extra cash and I realized real quick, I, that's where I bumped into Larry Harbold, which you have had on your show. And I started learning from him. And one of the things that he teaches is you don't ever have, you don't have to use a bank. And uh, there, a lot of the majority of America, ironically, is not bankable. Uh,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Listeners to the show, for example, doctors are not bankable usually by traditional standards. A lot of them aren't. That's why they have doctor mortgages uh, mm-hmm. specifically for physicians. And I learned, I needed to learn creative acquisition because I only had so much cash to use. And once that ran out, what am I going to do? Go back and work at 7-Eleven? Absolutely not. So for us, it became, I mastered uh, creative acquisition negotiations. I started taking some of Larry Harbaugh's courses. And I got really good at what he teaches. I read them like cover to cover. And I went out and started applying it. And I got, we landed our first four-unit building uh, in our town. And we moved into that one. I bought it with a VA mortgage. But what I learned from Larry is is to renegotiate everything. In other words, you got title closing ch- charges, there's lender fees, there's all these different things that are negotiable. So I took that information and I negotiated that deal to, normally I would have to, even though it's a zero down mortgage as a veteran, there's still closing costs, which were about $9,000. And I right. used the skills that I learned from him to leverage, to reduce those fees down to nothing. And I actually walked out of that closing with a check for 1700 bucks. Not only did I not use any of my own money, for, including closing costs, I negotiated with the realtors, I negotiated with the title company, I negotiated with the lender. Everybody kicked in credits, so I got paid to buy that first building. And Interesting. Yeah, and right out of the gate, that thing yielded with me living there. My wife, my, my wife and I were occupying one unit because it was a, a VA mortgage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And immediately out of the gate, once in like three months, we were positive cash flow, eighteen hundred dollars net take home. That's after paying the mortgage, after paying the water bills, after paying everything, with only three units paying rent, and I thought, well, this is interesting.
1: Well, I think this, this is a, a great example, and we've we've had a lot of conversations about kind of the generics of real estate, so I'm so glad you, you bring up a specific example because I'd love to dig more into that, and especially being this, the first one, the first one is often the hardest thing you can do. The first podcast, the first time you buy a house, the first time that you kiss a girl, whatever it is, That's the right. first time is the hardest. Um, so I'd love to know with this property if you could uh, open the kimono a little bit, Tyler. People may not want to see what's under the kimono, but we'll open it up anyhow. What uh, what kind of uh, amount of money was did you buy the building for? What we did that? Bought,
0: look like? We bought it for two hundred ten thousand. Okay. We got a thirty year mortgage, VA. Uh, mm-hmm, so
1: it was mm-hmm.
0: None of our money out of the deal. Mm-hmm. The, at the time we bought it, there were three or two I'm sorry two units three units were occupied one was vacant mm-hmm. and there are some undesirables in there and it was it was a mess it was a disgusting mess and mm-hmm. an eyesore in the community but so we were we bought it uh, I let them people know that we're living there right before we bought it that I'm former law enforcement and I can't wait to move in so the people that are less than desirable didn't really want to live next door to the former police officer so they quickly moved <laughs> Uh, before I owned it, which made it really easy as, for me as a landlord. I didn't have to put them out. They put themselves out. So it was like a, a self-eviction, which was great. So now I've got a kind of a blank slate. And what really started this spiraling in a an in amazing direction was the one guy that was left had, was, had lived there for 10 years. Nice guy. And he lived out of state half the year and he paid for an apartment the other half, you know, for the whole year down here in Florida. And he was a truck driver. And I was and I, in talking to him. I said, listen, uh, I'm renovating these other three units and running them out, but her other two units, I said, but what if, you know, what what about, why are you paying rent for the whole time? It's just, it's vacant. I mean, he's a truck driver. It's not like he's making millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I really love to retire in Florida. And someday I want to make sure I stake my claim and I can't buy a property. So I'm going to you know, stake my claim. I said, so let me ask you this. What if I gave you a discount on the rent in exchange for, uh, being able to rent your property out while you're not here? and he said, well, that'd be a great idea. So what I did is I, I essentially moved him out temporarily while he was out of state. I renovated his unit and I furnished it. He now pays me an inflated rent because he's only paying for four months out of the year. And I rent it for vacation rentals the rest of the year, that one unit. And that grew into a second unit. So that spiraled into between the two units, they were turning $3,000 a month each. So $6,000 a month gross coming in, uh, which is a lot more than the $900 in rent they would usually get.
1: So walk us through that. How, when uh, I guess let's, let's even rewind it a little bit. How did you find the property first? How did that come about?
0: We were under contract on a duplex on the ocean. My wife, It was a property that my wife always wanted to live in since she was a little girl. And mm. she was friends with the people that lived next door to this place. So we it was for rent, and it was ridiculously cheap. The guy that owned it owned the house next door. And he just liked to find good people and rent it out to them where he had good neighbors and he didn't really care about a profit. He was a stockbroker or something rather or in Wall Street retired. So he did very well for himself. And he, he had this house or this little duplex and he rented it to us for 800 bucks a month. And he says, you know, I'll sell it to you for 250. I said, man, that's a great deal. It's on the ocean. I mean, we'll rent the other side. We can live on the ocean and really not have to pay for it. Wow, what a great deal. So we, I went and got the mortgage approved, got the whole nine yards done, got the paperwork, signed the contract. I flew home from Rhode Island because I was still on the ship to close, went to the attorney's office on a Saturday morning, and instead of getting closing documents, we got an eviction notice. Hmm. He had found somebody else offered him 300000 He never even asked us if we wanted to go up higher. He accepted their offer, even though he was under contract with us.
1: Hmm.
0: And he sold it to these other people. And we had, he gave us uh, seven days to vacate, which was not good because, you know, we'd never, we'd always been great tenants, never been late, nothing like that. So I was able to talk him into a three month, uh, stay, so to speak. So we could stay there for three months. And that very day we were driving down the road. We had just came from looking at a three bedroom, two bath house. We we're going to buy live in it for a year and then rent it out. And on the way back home from there, we drove by this fourplex and I remember it was pumpkin orange. It was nasty brown and Trim and pumpkin orange. There was no landscaping. It was basically dirt and sand and sandspurs and all this it looked like a barren barren desert. Drove by and there was a for rent sign outside. And I said, "Well," told my wife Jill. I said, "Maybe we should stop there and at least see what they charge for rent in case we need a place to stay in a pinch until we find a place to buy." So we walked there and she's looking around, going, "Oh, this is horrendous. This is ugly. This is nasty. Who who treats their place like this?" So we called the tenant or the the landlord rather. And she said, and I said, at that point, I was used to saying, is it for sale? And I said, is it for sale? And she says, yes, it's, it is for sale. And I went, really? And I said, well, could we move into one unit? And then while we're figuring out how to buy it from you? And she said, yeah, no problem. Well, we never did actually have to move in before we bought it, With thank, thank goodness, because it wouldn't have met my wife's standards by any means. <laughs> but um, it turned out they had had it on the market for an entire year. And the owner was a, was a licensed real estate broker. And it was, you know, obviously it was her listing. She had had it priced, I think, about 315000 So with that, I just started applying some of the skills I'd learned from, Larry's got a course called Never Step Into a Bank. I had, I had uh, negotiated based on owner financing terms. But the big difference was is that the owner would not come down on the interest rate. They wouldn't mm-hmm. budge off the interest rate. And I was able to requalify for a VA mortgage at that point, and got I got a much lower interest rate, it was like 2% lower, so I gave them the option to, to meet the bank's loan, and they said no, and it was no money down either way, so I just went ahead and went with the bank mortgage, but I did have it under, I, I did have seller financing negotiated on it, we just didn't pull the trigger on that.
1: Interesting. Well, I think that's an interesting difference and something that uh, people could keep in mind that perhaps... It, it could be getting traditional bank financing is is an option still in these kind of situations if you find the right property. Uh, were you like calculating ahead of time, Tyler, to say okay, it's going to cost us ten grand to fix up this unit, twenty grand this unit. Well, were you keeping those kind of numbers in mind? You know, as you you penciled out not only the the purchase price but what you might have to do to get it up to standard so your wife will be happy.
0: I came up with a a quick test method. And it's a little, it's a very simple mathematical formula. And what I did is I take, and this is a lot of trial and error, but I take the gross monthly rent for any property I'm considering, gross monthly rent. If it rents for a thousand a month or 4,000 a month, I take that number and I divide that number by 1.5%. That's called a hurdle rate. And if you apply that to any deal that you're looking at that produces income, if you can buy at that, the result of that number, or lower, you will always have a positive cash flow unless you have some sort of bad financing involved in the mix.
1: So the gross monthly rent right. divided by 1.5%.
0: So let's run through that. So we got got $100,000. We're looking at a, a property that rents for $1,000 a month, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We're going to mm-hmm. take $1,000 a month, and we're going to divide that by
1: 1.5%. And that okay. comes
0: up with 66666
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: That means if, if I walk to a property and they say, hey, this will rent for $1,000, I know that I need to buy it for it no more than $66,000
1: mm.
0: for it to cash flow. And that allows for debt service, repairs, all the expenses, the water, all that good stuff, all those things, because that's where investors make their biggest mistakes, David, is they don't do all the math. They only do the math that makes the deal look good so they feel good about themselves. And then they wind up paying... F- their investments instead of their investments paying them.
1: Well, th- this is something that that I see really commonly. That that with this first deal, I mean, it sounds like you really got started on the right foot. Where I see a lot of physicians that want to get into real estate, and they get into real estate, and they get traditional bank financing, and then they they end up with a property where maybe they're getting a hundred dollars a month or two hundred dollars a month cash flow, or even more likely, they actually have negative cash flow of a hundred or two hundred dollars a month. It's nothing that. Kills you per se, but then when you do need to repair things, um, you're definitely cash flow negative. So, I would love to know your thought on that. How would you think about that kind of property if that's what you have now and you want to take the next step?
0: Well, if you've already got a property where you're not making as much as you should be, I mean that's the first thing I would figure out in. in- You'd be surprised how many doctors' offices and doctors I run across that are in that very same predicament. They bought a property, it's a very light cash flow, and then, oh my goodness, the hot water heater blows. Yeah. Well, if you're only making twelve hundred dollars a year at a hundred bucks a month, and a hot water heater on a Saturday evening is gonna cost you somewhere between seven fifty to a thousand dollars, depending on the plumber. And if you have them call you back at the doctor's office, it's gonna be a twelve hundred and fifty dollar hot water heater mm-hmm. because they know you've got deep pockets or at least they think you have deep pockets, uh, you're going to wipe your whole cash flow with one hot water heater. Uh, that becomes a big, big challenge. So it starts, you make your money when you buy. All the greats say that. You make your money when you buy. You have to do all of the math. You have to figure for uh, your debt service cost, your vacancy loss, your property management. And you know, the most common thing, and for those listening, if you're married and you're a physician, please don't say that your spouse is going to manage it And therefore that has no cost (laughs) because I cannot tell you how many doctors, wives or doctors, husbands have called me on the phone and says, okay, we're ready to sell all of our properties. And why is that? Well, because my C our CPA told us that there's no tax advantage to owning real estate. And after I picked the phone back up from the floor, I asked them that if first of all, is that the only CPA they've ever talked to and they should potentially think about talking to one more before they make that decision. I know I'm a terrible realtor. I should just keep my mouth shut and sell the house, but no, no, I got to help. And the second thing is I got to figure out how do we get here? Because I don't think that it's always broken. Sometimes it's a case, David, of, you know, it, it they've got it rented for a 1000 because that's what the realtor, realtor told them to rent it for.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But nobody's really done any research to find out what it will really rent for.
1: Mm.
0: And everybody's afraid to... You know, if you buy it as an existing rental and it's rented for 1000 well, the the current owner, it, it's being sold, but the markets are lower than market, or market rent. Everybody says that. Every property on the planet is below market rent. I get it. But at some point, folks, it's got to get to market rent or we're all wasting our time. So in that case, when you buy an asset or when you're analyzing an asset and you look at the potentials, also look at the paperwork that supports that. If there's a lease in place and it's getting ready to expire, well, great. You buy the property, and then you actually do raise the rent as soon as you're able to based on the leases that are in effect. Take it up to market rent. And if the tenants leave, that's okay. That's fine because it's more important to focus on a good, steady, solid income coming in than it is doing a favor for somebody else, you know, paying their housing because essentially that's what you're doing if you're marketing a property under market. And it's not as as tax-favored as people would like to think, well, I'm getting a tax break because I'm losing money. Um, no, that's really not how it was meant to be
1: <laughs> right yeah, no that's 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 a bad a bad deal. Well, plus, in the case of many doctors, uh you end up losing when you're making over a certain amount of money. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but that quote unquote passive uh, loss ends up going away. You can't take it against your income
0: it and, does, but that is just one of many. Tax advantages to real estate—just one—and I, when I hear that, it's, I think believe it—the figures either two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand. You do lose the passive income losses. I may, I'm talking—I know I'm probably not accurate on the the figure because I'm again not a CPA, but that's one of maybe five to seven different tax advantages. So I tell people, if you're a physician, first thing you need to do if you're going to invest in real estate is you find the, a CPA that owns investment property. Yeah, I don't care if they read the book. I want you want them to own investment property. There's a difference. There's a huge difference because you will be able to capitalize on all the rest of the advantages. There's straight line depreciation. There's, there's capitalized cost reduction. There's all kinds of different things, different ways that you can leverage that real estate towards reducing your tax obligation.
1: Well, I think that's, that's great advice. I'm um, just to, to walk back here a second. Through some of the things we've just talked about so far. Um, so, it sounds like your advice to people that are barely cash flow positive and cash flow negative, you got to get it that way, right? Yes. So, whether you um, refinance the loan, maybe, yep. uh, or you sell the property, or you push up rents, um, those are probably all things people might want to think about as they're looking in those situations, because the last thing you want to do is come out with money out of your pocket um, that would hurt your situation. Does that sum up that point?
0: absolutely. And with Um, that, when you're going to be raising rents, you add some value. Add value, low value, you you plant flowers, maybe you, you put some new windows in, change out the AC, something like that. Add some value and then raise the rent accordingly.
1: And do you think... You you've got to budget that out, you know. As you prepare to buy a place, you know that you should have five to ten grand to do those kind of rehabs, or more. You know, fifty grand or something like that, if necessary.
0: Well, you got to ask yourself, what what am I gonna? If I change the roof, is that gonna get me more rent? No, it's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody's Mm -hmm. gonna come in there and go, oh wow, I'll pay more for this property because it's got a new roof. Not at all. But if the tree is out front is a disgusting mess, and there's no grass out front, and it just has no curb appeal. There's no pride of ownership, and don't think that for one minute the tenants don't have pride of ownership on something they rent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Instead, spend some money on installing some grass. I'm talking about a few hundred dollars to install some grass. Maybe trim the tree a little bit, pressure wash the driveway. These are things that are going to yield you a higher return, a higher net profit, because they're going to attract a tenant that's willing to pay more money.
1: Well, and From my experience, it seems like the most expensive things are the kitchen and the bathroom. Right. Those tend to be the the most expensive things to redo because often you get into electrical. So generally, I'm sure you you want to avoid those things, if at all possible, at least to start out with, with your first property. Um, But sometimes you do what you got to do, I guess. All right. Well, let's take pause here for a second and go to our commercial break. I'm having that special offer, my friends, where you can get every single episode of the podcast on download for you, and maybe I'll even send it to you on a USB drive, as well as getting a bonus copy of my book, The Tax Reduction Prescription, an e-copy of it. Both of those things, hundreds of hours of material, dozens of ways to slash your taxes for only $5. Text less taxes, L-E-S-S, taxes, to 442. Two two, and you will get sent from there a link in your email to the checkout page to buy both of those things for five dollars. Now, um, as we we're talking here, Tyler, I was going through your formula uh, that you gave us—the gross monthly rent divided by one and a half percent—and I think it's it's something that people should think about because we went through this example of a thousand dollars a month um, rent that you would be charging on a and that gives us a $65,000 value, $66,000 value. Mm -hmm. Uh, Folks, I just went through the calculations on a 5% 30-year mortgage, and that would be a monthly payment, assuming you finance the whole thing, of about $350 a month. Mm -hmm. So you can see in Tyler's formula here, if you're getting $1,000 a month rent, let's say you had allocating $300 a month towards um, the... Property taxes and insurance, and perhaps some minor repairs, plus your monthly payment of $350 a month, you're still cash flow positive. So, I think this is a great rule of thumb that you brought up, Tyler, uh, for people to be aware of. Um, and I can hear someone right now screaming at us saying, But in California, <laughs> properties cost a heck of a lot more than $66,000. And I sure as heck, uh, am lucky, you know, to uh, to find a place for $500,000, uh, which if we reverse that math, right, you know, that uh, would be a heck of a lot of rent someone would have to get for $500,000.
0: And in that too, in response to that, I would say this, then you like, just like they say in the in the book Tax-Free Wealth, they say, if you want to change your tax, you have to change your facts. So you change the way in which you're earning revenue on that property. And what I mean by that is, yeah, a $1,000 a month tenant is not going to cut it on that $500,000 house. So you do the math in reverse. If it's a $500,000 house, you multiply the 500000 by 1.5%. That tells you what you're going to need to rent it for to make it worthwhile. So let's run through that 500000 times 1.5%. That means you need to generate $7,500 a month from that property for it to be a rental property. So my rebuttal number one is, not all properties are rental properties. Let's be real. Uh, the mansion with the 50 mile driveway is not a rental property. It's a mansion <laughs> with a 50 mile driveway.
1: Yeah.
0: If it's even with these numbers, what if you did it as a short-term rental? Does it have a swimming pool? At $500,000, is there a pool? Is it? Would it be? Does it have a nice view? Is it feasible to think that somebody would pay two, three, four, five hundred dollars a night to stay there? So, with a proper business plan, you simply apply a different strategy to it a different exit strategy. I'm not going to go a long-term lease. I'm going to do a a short-term, like we're going to run it by the day, by the week, by the month, whatever. We're going to maybe do an Airbnb or something like that. Maybe that income then goes from 7500 to 10000 Because if I can make $6,000 a month off of two units in Florida, I'm pretty confident that you should be able to make 7500 off a half-billion-dollar house in Southern California.
1: It would uh, be interesting to, to, crunch the numbers to see what that would look like. Cause I know half a million dollars does not probably buy you a pool <laughs> in yeah, Southern right. California, uh, you know, you're probably looking at a, a condo, maybe a townhome if, if you're lucky, um, with the prices out there. And I don't know what the, the rents are, but gosh, um, yeah, I think you definitely would have to get creative. Uh, do you think, is it important to stay local? to where you are, you know, or someone in Southern California, so they'd be thinking about Arkansas or someplace where you can buy a property for a lot cheaper.
0: I frankly don't think that you should buy in, in markets that are not conducive to rent. In other words, Memphis, Tennessee, for example, I own apartment buildings there. It's a rental city. It's where it, that, that 78% of the population are renters, um, Southern California, although we can make the math work, we can change the use, we can turn it into a short-term rental, we can make it cash flow. Is it practical for everybody? Not necessarily. In that $500,000 house, we know the California real estate market is cyclical. Every seven years, like clockwork, you can set your watch to it, it adjusts. Mm
1: -hmm. So the only
0: people that are really investing over in California should not be investing for cash flow, they're investing for appreciation. Those are two different things. A market like Florida, like for example, the Tampa Bay market... Is a mix of both. We've got great appreciation, but we've also got good cash flow. So we've got a very nice mix of both. The Midwest, for example, you can buy a house in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, for about ten grand. That's a, almost move-in ready. No kidding. And that thing will rent for seven fifty a month. However, you're going to have high turnover. Uh, the house is, you know, the, the weather's kind of extreme. There's no jobs there in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's it's swallowed up whole. There's no there's no industry. There's no there are no employers. So yes, they can be rented, but it takes two months to find a, a, a middle class tenant to move in one of those little houses. So it's all relative, you
1: follow. So how how would you be thinking about it? Uh, if you could start all over, sounds like you've you've built up yourself a portfolio. You know, where do you start? What what does that look like?
0: Analyzing the market. The very first place to start, I'll even give you the cheat sheet. The very first place to start is Sperling's best places. It's called bestplaces.net. You need to learn to become intimate with understanding the market you're about to invest in. I don't care if it's your market that's local or it's across the world. You have to understand the market. And wh- and more importantly, you have to understand who you're serving. Who is your client? And a lot of people call them my tenants. Those are not your tenants. Those are your clients. Those are the people you're going to be serving. And if that's not your attitude, you're going to have difficulty being successful as a landlord. Once you understand the market, and more importantly, who you're serving, then you can acquire assets that match that type of person. And let me explain that just a minute a little further. I've got low-income housing apartment buildings in Memphis, Tennessee. I know that if I put in flowers and I paint the sidewalks, that does not make them happy. What makes them happy is that I put security doors and high-intensity LED lighting on the exterior of the building on all four, four sides. That way the older folks that happen to be my tenants feel safe in their own home. And although when they move into my apartment building, they don't get a stove and they don't get an air conditioner because it will get stolen right out of their window. But I will provide them a security door that costs $300. And to them, that's worth $100 a month in rent, 75 to to $100 a month in rent. So I can get more rent by installing a $300 security door than I can by installing a stove and an air conditioner in Memphis, Tennessee. In Florida, if I'm going to work with more of a B-class type, maybe like a med student, they're gonna want something. They're not gonna live in, in a place that's lackluster and, and needs paint and it's fallen down. They're not gonna do that, right? Not that I provide that in Memphis either. We've they're all clean, safe and affordable, but it's a different product for a different client. You know, the medical students probably saddled with debt. Okay. They're they're not making any money. They're they're going through the residency, they're in they're in school, they're going through all this, they're working nonstop, they sleep like ten minutes a day, right?
1: So for <laughs> exactly. them,
0: you know, it better be easy to move into. It better be somewhere close to a medical institution, Mm -hmm. maybe a teaching hospital, probably a a two-bedroom because most medical students that I've met can't afford their own apartment. They're going to need to share with one or seven other medical students. But when you understand that client, then you provide a product to serve them best. You see what I'm saying?
1: I follow you. So it depends on the client kind of clientele you want to attract. And of course, you got to be able to crunch the numbers to know if it makes sense you for do. you. Um, I'd love to know how, how are you finding properties? You know, so you mentioned, okay, you, you might look online to find the desirable cities perhaps. Um, and so you've found a city, maybe you've you've thought about a, a clientele or something like that. What's the next step in terms of finding a property?
0: Once we've discovered the market, once we've, then we've decided who we're gonna serve, we're gonna go to the areas where the people that we're going to serve live, and we're gonna look for problems in that market. In other words, I like to buy properties in good, good locations, places that are, people feel safe walking down the street, and this is my Florida properties. Uh, they're clean, safe, affordable neighborhoods. They're nice neighborhoods. I look for the smaller building because I don't have as much competition. You know, there's not a lot of big hedge funds that I'm competing against. Mm. So my investors and I will go source an opportunity that is run down. We go to, we send people out to eviction court, for example, to sit in eviction court. And we look for the mom and pop owned apartment buildings. They are usually mismanaged more often than not. And they have tenant issues. They're, they're poorly maintained. You see peeling paint. You see uh, landscaping not kept up with broken down, unregistered cars in the parking lot. Things like that show me that nobody's effectively managing the property. That goes on my radar. That gets on my list. And then from that point, we watch the property and we we try to make contact with the owner, strike up a dialogue, which is ironic because sometimes they always try to get us to manage the property before we buy it. Well, would you like to manage it? No, sir. We don't provide property management services. Mm -hmm. We have property managers on our team, but for us to manage it, we're going to first need to buy it. And you can't, I can't begin to tell you how many times that has led to a contract, that very statement. We identify yes. the problem, and then we just simply come up with a solution to the problem. We do a capital call for our investors. We bring our investors on board. We go in and do the acquisition, and then immediately go in and start to stabilize the process We or the project. In other words, we'll, we'll come in and we'll usually make some tenant changes early on, uh, discharge the management, and then do the renovations, and then we'll put good quality tenants in there that have a good track record, that are, are good people. And uh, in a couple of years, we'll refinance out the property, pay off our investors. Usually they never leave because you know if you keep winning, they don't leave. And then uh, we go on to the next project.
1: So it sounds like a lot of these deals are um, several investors coming together. So it's not just yeah. a, a um, one person buying a property like you did. With the the four unit building, uh, for example. So
0: yeah, we uh, want to make sure that we're you know you got to follow the law when you're doing this, and it, and the Securities and Exchange Commission is very clear on what the regulations are. So when we if we have one person, it's done one way, but if we've got more than one person, then we usually focus on accredited investors. Uh, we'll do a, a syndication and, and put together a private placement memorandum, to go do the acquisition and, and set the project up and go from there.
1: Interesting. Um, Is it something where you feel like today for yourself that um, you want to be together with other people when you buy property? Or do you prefer doing what you started out with of just buying a unit by yourself? Or do you do a mix of both?
0: I do a mix of both. You know, the smaller stuff I come across, I'm a realtor, so I'm out in the field all the time. I've got a lot of buyers and sellers that I work with. And from time to time, when I'm sitting down with a seller, they may want to move. Quicker than what the market will, let them. so I'll give them market value. I'll let them know what market value is, and a lot of times the opportunity presents itself for me to buy the buy the property before it even goes on the market. And if we can arrange that, great. Um, I do believe there's strength in numbers. You know, there's economies of scale. I I do better financially because time is money, and I realized that in the last few years, the more I spend, more time I spend doing things, I realize that if I can go do a larger building, with a few other people. We're dollar for dollar going to make a lot more money because the deal can afford to hire the help it takes to properly manage the asset. And that's where it gets powerful. We still, we do both. You know, we bounce a little bit back and forth. Like right now, deal flow is light. But in a, a few weeks, we may have three, four buildings that we're looking at. We, we the, the key is here is we just keep acquiring. As opportunities come up. We, can, we consider opportunities they come up. If they match our criteria, we acquire them. If they don't, we pass on them. It's that simple.
1: Hmm. So it sounds like um, we had Mark Podolsky, the the land geek, and uh, Larry Harbolt, co- of course, as well, on the show. And both of those gentlemen tend to find a list of people. So they'll go and look for distressed situations of some sort. And they're trying to get to the owners before they um, get to the auction for example right uh, it sounds like that that isn't so much a part of your strategy with uh, multi-family multiple units uh, type uh, of investing uh, is that just not as as common to find or, or harder to find uh, tell me more about you know th- that philosophy of finding lists and mailing people versus uh, sounds like you you might be going to court um, to find out who's been evicted and whatnot
0: direct mail is very effective in the single family space and i would say the one to four unit space because you're dealing with the average person and they're not very sophisticated they don't know about things like land trust and all that so they're very easy to track them down but when you get into the multifamily assets they are usually registered in some sort of a corporate identity so when that happens if i send a, a letter no matter how heartfelt it is it winds up on a secretary's desk somewhere because that's the person that checks the mail and they go through and they go junk 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 oh this is the bill junk 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 and yeah. my letter never gets nobody ever looks at it hmm. now in a single family space it winds up on somebody's kitchen table so the likelihood of them opening the mail for a single family is significantly higher than it is a multifamily especially when we get over the four units and we get into the apartment buildings so for us direct mail is not an effective strategy. It just simply isn't.
1: And so instead, um, it sounds like it's you usually in a multifamily, you, you have to either, uh, have relationships with people that have sellers like realtors or, uh, being in court, like you mentioned, right. um, or perhaps um, you just know people that might be selling other corporations. So before it hits the market, kind of, um, you get the first crack at it. Could be, you know, if someone knows, hey, you're a common buyer. Um, So it sounds like it's a little more work to really massage that kind of market um, than starting cold, uh, as it could be in some of the um, primary residence. Am I am I off there, or no, what do you think about you're it? You're absolutely
0: on it. And one of the titles that I carry, the hats I wear, is that of a syndicator. My job is to bring people together to acquire and stabilize large assets. I do that because you know the average attorney, doctor, engineer, high-income individual, they're busy doing what they do to earn the revenue in the first place. They don't have time to knock on doors, go sit in eviction court and things like that, all the things that my team does. So the service that we bring to the marketplace, whether it be as a broker or a syndicator, is we spend time discovering that in the process of doing that, people know us as the problem solvers. They know Cashflow Guys is a problem solver in the market. No, we're not going to help you with your single family house, but we are going to help you if you've got an apartment building, you're having a hard time with it, you need some guidance. Sometimes we just come in and consult them on how to turn things around. Other times we wind up buying the asset from them. But by positioning ourselves as problem solvers that actually perform and follow through, that creates a pretty powerful advertising message in the marketplace. So we don't have to advertise per se for deals as much as we, as our quote unquote competitors would. As you just have that reputation, you know, you got an apartment building, you better call the cash flow guys because we can figure out a way to help you through this situation.
1: Well, uh, we're running out of time, Tyler, on this this interview today, and uh, I just appreciate you opening up. And I would love to know from you as you look at your past, where you've gone through this journey, where uh, you, you hit it big in real estate, and and uh, maybe you you might say that you squandered that a little bit, but then came back and look at you now with uh, a whole bunch of properties. How? Do you think about financial freedom today versus when you had half a million dollars in the bank and you were were spending it away? How do you think of financial freedom? What does that mean to you?
0: Well, I've changed my the way I feel about financial freedom. I used to think that a pile of money would equal financial freedom. And when I realized that if I had a pile of anything, it would over time disappear. But instead, if I focused on streams instead of piles, I could truly build wealth. You know, that $500,000 pile of cash inflation alone is going to eat that at a way of what five six seven eight nine percent depending on who you ask. Mm-hmm. However, if I invest instead for streams of income, those streams of income that become evergreen, they never go away they never die because I don't I don't sell the assets so why would they go away by focusing strictly on streams and never thinking about piles that is how I've escaped the rat race in real life and that's how I've achieved financial freedom
1: so you'd say you're financially free now? am financially free, yes. And so by your definition, to recap, that's you have more income coming in from uh, your real estate holdings than um, money that you spend.
0: Absolutely. My passive income, even more importantly, because the true definition of escaping the rat race is your passive income, that which comes, or get, comes on its own. My passive income exceeds my expenses. So yes, I am out of the rat race. And that is, that's all rental income and some income from notes.
1: Well, the, the thing that that I tend to think about with this is that things can change. Uh, that income stream could potentially change. Um, do you think that is unfair to to think of that way? You know, that I mean, you have to have some buffer in there, right? I mean, if you're right on the number there, I suppose if you have a fifty percent higher, you know, if your passive income streams are ninety k and your your income needs are sixty k, then you have a lot of wiggle room, right? Yes, absolutely. But if you're at 60 and 60, to me, I wouldn't consider that to be financially free, uh, particularly if you're, you're highly levered, um, where you can end up having increasing interest rates and, and those kinds of things. Because uh, I know a lot of commercial loans um, tend to be um, low amortized and tend to have interest rates that can pop up on you. So your cash flow could change, perhaps, with some investments, depending upon how the notes and deals are structured.
0: Well, and that's what I talked about earlier. The key is I don't ever take on anything that has adjustable rate financing. It just doesn't make any good sense to me. Uh, I'm in it for the long haul. So when I bring on an asset, if the debt service is not conducive to a long-term hold, then I won't. Sim- I simply won't do the deal. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Because it, it doesn't. there's no badge of honor for me for having 100 buildings versus 30 buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the badge of honor is that I have at least $25,000 a month in passive income coming in no matter what, which means I got to allow some oops in there. So I better have 30, maybe 32 coming in. So yeah. I have that no matter what, because, you know, natural disasters happen, fires happen, things happen. I did, Granted, I have insurance, but it takes time to reposition assets and all that. So, but it all starts with being smart about how you use your debt. You know, I don't if I need, if I'm going to go out and buy a new vehicle, for example, I'm first going to go acquire a cash flowing asset to pay for that. If I want to go, like I wanted I wanted a $5,000 kayak, so I went out and bought a duplex that will yield peel off the cash flow to afford the cost of that kayak. Same thing goes for a Porsche. If the Porsche has a $500 a month car payment, fine. Go buy a cash-flowing asset that will spin off at least $500 a month for eternity, and off you go.
1: Well, I think the the great thing I, lo- I love about that thought is that Rather than just consuming, that you've helped to create assets that uh, can help to pay for things, and that could perpetuate perpet perpet I can't even say the word right now. <laughs> go beyond the uh, the initial cost of buying a thing. Um, I think it's interesting as, as we've had conversations with these various people how some folks you know really got in an over situation and then they just kind of cratered and uh nowadays they they tend to buy things more in cash um or perhaps do fixed interest rates like yourself so they can avoid those kinds of lessons so my friends that that can change your future if you're relying on these cash flow streams you know be very careful of how you finance everything so with that tyler i've mentioned to you before we got started how many physicians many of us really lacked a business education so you've certainly had your ups and downs and while we don't have a whole month to go through the lessons you've learned if you could pass on one lesson maybe that we haven't covered today one business lesson what would you like to pass on to us
0: just what i said a few minutes ago focus on streams and not piles
1: there you go all right tyler any closing thoughts
0: you know, it's about taking action. All of the students, the, a lot of the listeners I know are medical students, and one thing I think of you is you're going to have student loan debt for a long time. It won't take if you focus on cash-flowing assets in your investing strategy. That which yields cash flow, those things can pay your student loans for you instead of you having to pay them. So get your what little money you may have starting out, get it moving for you. Don't idle money is lazy money.
1: Well, I think it's a great point, and and I think. To recap our, our earlier conversation, I would just like to emphasize to everyone that when you're in a situation where you don't have a whole lot of cash flow, be very careful with buying those assets that might focus more on appreciation like we were talking about in Southern California uh, because those can hurt you rather than help you. So I, I just love to, to leave the audience with, with that thought to add on to what Tyler said. Um, Tyler, just a a final thought on that. Um, Do you include any appreciating assets that maybe don't generate as much cash flow in your portfolio now?
0: We do. Well, they're not appreciating assets, but the other thing we invest in is uh, non-performing notes, which basically they are a pile play, so to speak, but they do give us the cash that we need to invest in more cash flowing assets.
1: Cool. Well, Tyler, if people have more questions, where can they find you? How can they get in contact with you?
0: Best way to get to me is cashflowguys.com. That's my website. That's home base for my YouTube channel, my podcast, the whole nine yards, everything about me and about what we do is right there on the website.
1: Perfect. And we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. So, everyone, make sure to, to check the show notes so you can find Tyler and get into contact with him. And, my friends, if you are a physician or you're servicing physicians, you want to tell your story, would love to hear from you. Make sure to contact me, Dave, at Doctor or on my website, www.Doctor And, of course, if you are running into this podcast and you just enjoy it. You love these guests like Tyler that we brought on to the show. Big favor to ask of you. Rating and reviewing the podcast is fantastic and awesome. But even beyond that, What really helps us get going is getting more downloads of the podcast, which you can do by grabbing your friend's iPhone, iPad, or Android device, whatever they got. Grab it. Download the podcast. Give them some of your favorite episodes. And if they love it, you take all the credit. If they hate it, you tell them that I told you to do it. It's all my fault. They can send me hate mail. All right? So go ahead and do that, my friends. Would really appreciate your help in promoting the podcast. To your colleagues, send them an email with it have questions, have comments about your situation or real estate investments like we've been talking about with Tyler, make sure to send me an email, dave at drfreedompodcast.com. And remember my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. I'm having that special offer, my friends, where you can get every single episode of the podcast on for download for you. And maybe I'll even send it to you on a USB drive as well as getting a bonus copy of my book, The Tax Reduction Prescription, an e-copy of it. Both of those things, hundreds of hours of material, dozens of ways to slash your taxes for only $5. Text less taxes, L-E-S-S, taxes to 44222. And you will get sent from there a link in your email to the checkout page to buy both of those things for $5. All right, let me know, my friends, uh, other guests, other people you might be interested in. would love to connect and help more and more physicians. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle.